0: What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. So the question is not whether we will be extremists but what kind of extremists we will be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? This quote stems from a Martin Luther King Jr. letter written from Birmingham jail in 1963. I first read it on Instagram thanks to today's guest, and I think it suits his work and the chat we're going to have today. In 2017, Ethan Lippitz was diagnosed with brain cancer, which led him to make major career shifts so he could focus attention on healing. He's now an activist for Love and hosts Improvisational Song Circles, Salon Conversations, and the podcast Love Extremist Radio. We're going to delve into his personal journey and activism, as well as many themes that he explores today. And with Dr. Megan Fleming's help, we will weigh in for a listener who wants to know how to support a partner who's struggling in the sexual function department. Before we dive in, a huge sponsor shout out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to buy sex toys and more. Through February 11th, get a free gift with any WeVibe purchase. Use the code WEVIBEGWP in stores, or online, to receive an exclusive WeVibe toy bag while supplies last. To start shopping, click the link in the show notes or the ad on my blog at girlboner.org. While you're there, sign up for occasional Girl Boner extras by email. I share special discounts, freebies, news about upcoming events, and more about once a month. I'm so pleased to have you here, Ethan. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really curious about what you learned about sex and sexuality when you were a kid?
1: Ooh, so that's an interesting question because I'd say learned... Mm, it, it, I often think about school, and that leads me to health class, and that wasn't my first foray into sex and sexuality. I remember having a um, tongs that we used to get hot bread out of the toaster, and I remember asking my brother where the vagina was in the tongs as if they were two legs. And I was like, is it on the front or is it in the inside? Because I just (laughs) didn't understand the kind of placement of female anatomy. And then later, I guess health class kind of clarified that as well. Um, But yes, it was very anatomical for me, this kind of curiosity of the body I didn't quite understand. And then over time, I started to, probably when I was 12 or maybe a little younger, maybe 11, find my own sexuality start to touch myself um start to kind of um discover what made me feel good and i was that was really interesting because it was intuitive it wasn't guided by anything besides my my own exploration nobody told me what to do or how to find what turned me on Um, and then over time i started to find you know, of course, pornography, but before that, it was like my mom's Victoria's Secret magazine, (laughs) which she actually caught me with in the bathroom once. And she's like, why do you have my Victoria's Secret magazine in here? And then she just kind of, I felt like she was like, oh, and then closed the door. So it was, (laughs) it was definitely a interesting moment. And certainly, actually, I would say that was a moment of shame almost for me, because Mm. I felt. I had been caught in something that I wasn't supposed to do and a lot of my interaction with my body and exploring was happening at night under my covers before I went to bed and that again is like being in the dark and I think so many of us especially men in my you know that might be in their 30s and are you know have gone through kind of pre and post internet sexual education Um I you know, grew up before the internet and was discovering my sexuality just before that became a thing. And then when I got into maybe middle school, high school, um, pornography started to show up online and we discovered that. But yeah, I remember friends bringing Playboys hidden in car magazines to school and us kind of rifling through that collectively. And also being with friends discovering porn and like clicking on images that we would look at together and be like, oh, look at that, click on that. because. Even having an Internet connection was kind of like a singular thing in one house. So you had to kind of gather around the computer like it was a fireplace. And <laughs> yeah. so it was, it was this interesting discovery that was both personal and in some ways collective. Um, and the collective education uh, was more just kind of oogling and, and looking at things, whether it be magazines or images on the Internet. And then the personal was more of that, but also discovering what felt good for me. And that was all tied into a sense of I need to be secretive. I need to hide. This isn't something for me to really talk about or share unless it's related to sexual exploration with a partner. And that then was cool to share. And I remember one of my closest friends in high school was like the first person in freshman year to like get a blowjob and he had a girlfriend in New York and it was this big deal because we grew up out in the suburbs of Boston and it was like oh she's in New York they so you like, all
0: talked about this because yeah, I like never he... heard about blowjobs I actually asked a high school teacher what a blowjob was oh nice yeah because I asked a when I was I was in marching band for a year <laughs> and I, I heard blowjob and I was like is that mean I knew I thought this seems like it's sexual but like do you blow on like blowing like I don't know if it's because you know I'm with a bunch of people who play instruments right it's <laughs> you how you blow on clear your spit valve right, <laughs> right exactly yeah. it must be that and I remember uh this this guy I asked he said you should ask the ask the teacher and so I did <laughs> nice. yeah yeah but I I had never heard I mean no one around me like when I started having sex I thought I was like the only one yeah so was it just common knowledge that did everyone find out oh blow job
1: it was kind of I guess we knew what it was before, Um, but he he was like the first in our group of friends and it became kind of a rumor on high school freshman year and we always had this perception that other cities were more advanced right so if you lived in the inner city like if you grew up in LA or New York you were probably doing more sexual activity earlier and that might may or may not have been true but we had this perception that that was the case and certainly that was verified by my friend who came back from a weekend in New York with his girlfriend and had his first blowjob and that was like the talk of high school <laughs> and then eventually things continued and more people experienced more things and some folks got, you know, paired up and started to explore more but for me it wasn't really until my the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school when I had my first real girlfriend and I had a friend actually tell me before, like sit me down before we really hooked up and was like, "Okay, this is how you touch your breast." And, like, it was a really funny, Your little weird... impromptu
0: sex set on the yeah. <laughs> school drive. He drives. was
1: like, yeah, just, like, you know, put your finger, like, around the areola and then, like, get to the... Nipple. Areola? Very technical. Yeah, Did you do he, it? Yeah, he was like, yeah, like, do, like... Yeah, I think so. I was, like, it Going was, like, a very, like, navigating a labyrinth in my mind. And it was this whole... Process, but yeah.
0: <laughs> that's so funny. interesting. Yeah, I'd love to talk about uh, your health journey. Yeah, uh, on a related topic here. Um, so, you, you were when you were diagnosed with cancer. Could you tell us about your life leading up to that? I know you were had a very different career path at that mm-hmm. time. Do you remember what life was generally like, like the weeks leading up?
1: Mm. Well, so. There's a couple things going on in my life at that time. I had been working at a custom apparel company that I built with a co-founder initially in college. And then I brought it to Los Angeles. And that's something that I had been working on since 2006, 2005, and had evolved quite a bit and had some ups and downs and recognized that my passion for the original mission had faded, and I we had evolved quite a bit out of that, and so I was struggling to go to work every day. I was showing up and bringing my energy and my spirit to the company and doing a lot of sales work and really trying to help it grow, but ultimately my passion wasn't there, and simultaneously I noticed I had been losing over the course of that previous year function in my right foot and leg. Like I was kind of limping, and I felt numbness, and It was a strange feeling of just not sure what was going on, but I felt like I needed to get it checked out. So I had an appointment with a podiatrist to go have someone look at my foot. And I had just invited uh, my partner at the time, or kind of someone I was in a long-distance partnership with, um, Kind of, it was kind of off and on, to come and live with me. And so she said, okay, let's give it a try. And she was kind of unsure about the relationship, but she was open to trying it. And she had a son and so she and her son came and had moved in and they had just come back from spending i don't know maybe two three months in ibiza where she would go every summer so it was the end of the summer or actually no it wasn't it was it was the beginning of the summers around june so it was end of the spring and she had been there for a few months in the spring and Was settling in, but it was still kind of unsure, you know, how we were feeling about being in the same place. And it was new days and her son was set up in a room in the front of the house. And um, I got quite sick Um, and we actually went out that night. And I noticed my foot was being abnormally uncomfortable and I wasn't sure if it was my shoes because I was wearing these kind of thin shoes or what was going on. But I got super sick when we got home and I had actually been sick all day. I was at work and I I came home from work early because I had this fever and it was like oscillating between hot and cold all all day. And I got in bed that night and uh, my partner slept with her son because she didn't want to get sick. And in the middle of the night, I had been having a hard time falling asleep. I was kind of taking the sheets on and off me because I was having these sweats and these um, then getting freezing and having a mummy up. And I was in mummy mode and I finally fell asleep. And then all of a sudden I was awoken by what felt like a muscle spasm where your leg just tenses up, you know, like if you're surfing and like a charley horse. Exactly. It was like a charley horse in my leg. But then it started to like drift up to my thigh and then it drifted up to my entire right side, actually, and like basically felt like this wave of um, being stuck and frozen up my right side and then moving down my left side. And I felt my back start to arch and I had totally lost control of my body and my body was just literally spazzing. And I was just like, "What? I don't know what to do. I need to fall off the bed. I, I need to alert Cassandra my partner at the time that I was having a major issue Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what was going on and so somehow I lost consciousness but I also fell off the bed and it might have happened at the same time I feel like I was aware of falling off the bed and as I hit the floor I went unconscious and I awoke to her kind of running into the room kind of helping me regain consciousness helping me breathe and calling the 911, um, 911, and some fire department folks came, and they tried to rouse me. They helped me break my fever with a cold towel and said, we got to take you to the hospital. And I said, no way, I'm not moving. I felt like if I were to move, I would have just thrown up all over the place. I was super nauseous. And so they said, okay, we're going to leave. So I signed a waiver and let them go and somehow got back in bed and, and slept for a little bit. Um, and then the next morning we went to urgent care on the recommendation of some friends because I wasn't sure what had happened. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And by that morning we kind of recognized, okay, I, I think I had a seizure last night. So something's up. It's we... interesting
0: that the, uh, when you called 911 that you weren't given, like no one said we think you're having a seizure.
1: Yeah, they weren't sure. Yeah. They weren't sure. Um, they thought maybe it was a seizure, um, but they didn't have proof. Yeah. Um, because they didn't experience it. And I had just kind of broken from unconsciousness and fallen out of the bed. So it could have been other things, maybe. But they may have mentioned that. But anyway, I went to urgent care and they rushed me through because I showed up with a, you know, saying I had a seizure last night. And that happens to. Get you back in uh, quickly, get quickly <laughs> into the front of the line, yeah. And I got a CAT scan, and they found a tumor in my brain. And the lovely doctor at Urgent Care said, you know, it's like a piece of flan. We'll just open you up and scoop it right out, and you'll probably be awake for the procedure. And all that was a little crazy. But it sounds
0: so everyday, like right. Oh, it's a cold. Here's some Kleenex. Basically, we'll just scoop it out like flan.
1: Yeah, which in some ways maybe was the right approach because she didn't make a big deal of it. And I kind of appreciated that. Yeah. And the other other ways it was weird, but you know I have a different relationship with Flan now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that so so that precipitated you know the next you know two and a half years of my life where I went through surgery and then radiation and chemotherapy and changed my diet and yeah my body completely morphed and changed. Um, my relationship to sex certainly did. Um, I lost. A lot of my sexual libido and energy, for the most part, um, through my diagnosis and surgery and treatment. There was just a lot going on, and I had to focus my energy elsewhere. Um, And that relationship that I was in ended. And as it ended, I recognized that I was just really needing to focus on myself and recovery. Yeah. And... Diet and my best health, and and mentally, and and I stepped down from the company and um, shifted my entire life. Really,
0: it's really fascinating that you were already a place in your life, and your relationship, and your career—all these different pieces mm-hmm. were kind of coming to the fore. Like there were mm-hmm. tensions around you, and um, uncertainty, and change, and then. Poof, yeah. Like so it kind of blew
1: up. It's stress and 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 I didn't recognize it as that, but most disease in our bodies is uh, something that derives from stress and inflammation is a response that our body, you know, um, responds to with stress and so that was all, you know, the business and the relationship stuff was really challenging for me. And so that yeah, that completely changed my life and I'm grateful for it. But at the time it was really intense.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. I heard you on Sick Boy podcast, which yes. I really love. And it was funny because I had the pleasure of appearing on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And so we had already met. And I just happened to be a subscriber to Sick Boy. Oh, so nice. I, <laughs> I was like, oh, it's Ethan. Um, <laughs> uh, big shout out to Sick Boy because they're, they're awesome. Great. They're yes. great, great folks. And I, I love how um, they bring so much um, awareness and also uh light and and even fun to these conversations around uh, illness and disease. You shared in that interview that you decided to have sperm frozen. That's right. Could you tell us about that decision?
1: Well, it was something that was recommended to me um, by the doctor. It was actually kind of last minute. It was maybe like a week or two before I was going to start, I guess, radiation. No, not radiation, chemo, because radiation is focused on my brain. So it was the chemo that I was gonna start taking and I'd already been taking some chemo during radiation but I yeah I must have been just before radiation and chemo because I there was concern that the chemotherapy could affect my sperm and just the quality of the sperm maybe my count there's certain chemotherapies that are more aggressive in terms of that addressing you know affecting that than others and so I went to Livestrong um Lance Armstrong's former uh Nonprofit, and they helped basically pay for freezing my sperm, and that was a really interesting experience. Going to a sperm bank, it wasn't really a traditional sperm bank. I guess it was more of a fertility clinic, but they had this room where I was supposed to, not supposed to, but they had pornography on a you know, video and like this chair, and you know I had to basically jizz into a cup, and I did that a bunch so that I would have enough saved up in case I wanted to use that early sperm instead of my post chemo sperm to see if there had been mutations or something like
0: that. Mm, I appreciate you sharing that because it's not something that we hear a lot about in mm-hmm. conversations about cancer and treatment, and it's an important consideration for sure. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some desire shifts and changes. I'd love to share a, a listener question, and it ties into that topic, and cool. then we'll come back and talk about some of your awesome activism. This question uh, came from one of my uh, email subscribers who I shared this. Survey and people could share different topics they wanted to hear explored. And this is one of those topics. They wrote this Any tips on how to support your partner who is having difficulty with reaching orgasms or maintaining erections? How to encourage them to decenter their focus on orgasms and find other means of enjoying sexual intimacy? This is such a thoughtful question. There are so many ways to experience pleasure, and yet there's often so much pressure to perform and to perform in certain ways. So I appreciate that you asked this so much. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say.
2: I know I always say that I love a question because, honestly, I do love each and every question that I speak to. But in particular, I'm loving this question because the reality is at some point in every couple's life, they're going to have this challenge, right? Which is difficulty with arousal or ability to reach an erection or ability to come to orgasm. And what I know is that as soon as this happens, like in any time consistently, because there's always the one-off, right? Maybe you had too much to drink or you're incredibly exhausted. Like it's more than really clear to you that the conditions aren't met to get aroused, but that when for any consistent time that's happening, there's frustration, there's disappointment, there's, you know, I sort of say like the cartoon bubble above your head. If you think about all the thoughts that you're having, typically it's things that look like this, like, why is it taking so long? It's not happening. You know, concern about, you know, I feel like I'm losing fullness. Am I going to be able to stay hard? And all of these thoughts, as I always say, there's nothing erotic or sexy. This is sort of that performance demand that begins to happen. And so to your point, it's like, we have to go back to basics, going back to the body, going back to pleasure and not about performance because our culture, unfortunately, is so much about performance. And often we see this sexually, right? People getting, you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with, of course, having orgasm at the same time. But from my perspective, if it's quote unquote a goal, then the intention around it shifts. And for most of us who can get into our heads, if there's a performance piece to it, again, unless you're sort of a trained athlete, it's kind of like being better up the plate. And people choke, right, and so and then, what happens in the body is a physiological response is loss you know constricted energy, constricted blood vessels, and uh, loss of blood flow so you know, what I see around when this happens is that almost universally there's resistance to it. It's a sense of, you know, what's wrong and it's got to be quote unquote fixed right away. And there's a lot of anxiety around it. And mostly it's coming from a place of, because they really want to please their partner. And then they're forgetting that they have their hands and their mouths and that if they could just relax and let go and be in the moment, you know, the condition of arousal, uh, the foundation of it is relaxation. And we also know that from that place of relaxation, it's like through the body, it's what feels good because arousal's a reflex, right? You can't command it to be you can't command to be aroused any more than you can command to be sleepy. So, you know, to your question, it's like take the focus of erection and orgasms off the table. We want to go back to basics and we want to refocus on pleasuring. And so as a sex therapist, the most common thing we do is we sort of say exactly that. We are, you know, for the next X amount of time and specific to the couple and the their unique experience. But sex is off the table until we ext- essentially can extinguish that anticipatory response and of the performance demand or of it not going well, like all those intrusive thoughts that come along with that. So, the way to extinguish it is to move into pleasurable sensations where, again, you both are in the place of, like it was in the beginning, that sense of flow where nothing needs to happen. And when nothing needs to happen, the conditions are met for the reflex, for the arousal, for you know, ultimately what you want to have happen, happen. But the point is, even as I say that, it's not the goal, right? It's just, it's what will naturally happen when you get out of your own way and out of your own head and you create the conditions of, again, giving and receiving pleasure. And so, um, you know, I often say that the biggest sex organ is our mind, but that equally our biggest organ is our skin. So the whole idea here is head to toe, explore each other's bodies and your turn-ons. You know, is it the nape of the neck, the lower spine, the inner thighs? You know, for some, it's even for in tantra, sucking of the big toe. And so although I know that's not for everyone, when's the last time you sort of head to toe explore turn-ons with your partner? So that's really what I'm inviting you to do is, again, going back to basics, back to pleasure, right now, any penetration, even when and if he gets aroused, right, because he might be like, because he's aroused and excited about it, he wants to move quickly to penetration. I sort of refer to that as they want to use it before they lose it. And the reality is it's such a setup because um, it's it's almost like when someone has a morning erection. They may be erect, but erect doesn't equal aroused per se. That's a physiological response. And so it's really about taking the time, knowing it's not, it's not fragile. By this, I mean, you don't have to, quote unquote, use your erection every time you have one. It's like, oh, there it comes. There it goes. And as soon as you're more relaxed about it and knowing that you don't have to do anything, then that's when and you're consistently getting aroused. At some point, we would move and change to allowing into sort of the central touching and exploration, some genital stimulation. But again, initially, again, hands and mouth pleasuring and not in any way penetration. So it really is sort of a progress of, in a sense, what we could refer to as systematic desensitization. It's really, whenever there's anxiety, we wanna engage in a, like a low level of that behavior that creates some anxiety and pairing relaxation with it. So that's certainly the value of taking it off the table. And the last thing I would say is that when and if there might be a neurological condition or a vascular one, like in diabetes or perhaps uh, surgery, prostate surgery, it's to recognize that um, they, again, arousal is both the physical and the psychological, and they may not be necessarily getting the stimulation that they need. And so a sex toy that I think would be worth exploring in that case is called the Pulse Duo.
0: Megan added that, what she loves about this toy is that it's worn by a person with a penis and can be enjoyed by a partner too because of the stimulation provided at the base of the toy. It's also hands free, which I love, um, which makes it very, very accessible.
2: I also want to say a great big thank you to all of you who participated and joined my nine day pleasure challenge. I can tell you it was a ton of fun and I really enjoyed getting to connect with you. And, you know, a number of you private messaged me as well as you know, responding to your comments on the Facebook Live. So, you know, it was so much fun. I just wanted to let you know I'm definitely going to be coming up with another challenge soon. So definitely stay tuned.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I really love the points you brought up about just because you are physically aroused doesn't mean you're emotionally aroused uh, and and really exploring other um, ways of experiencing pleasure that we might not have considered before. What came up for you when you were hearing that?
1: Yeah, I definitely relate. And, and that kind of sense of, like, scarcity almost. Like, oh, my gosh, here's an opportunity. i got to take advantage of it. When ultimately, yeah, it might just be physical and not um, energetically. You know, it's not like I'm feeling that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things came up. Um, I mean, in on one hand, part of me wants to tell this person... You know, I've found that pine pollen and maca, right? I take it every day now, uh, more or less. And that really has energized me and helped stimulate my libido. Is a supplement or? Mm, yeah, it's their powders you can get. Um, so, yeah, supplements um, that you can get at um, online or, or at specialty grocery stores. And I mix it in my coffee. And it just like every day I take a little bit of it and it really has like helped with my libido and sex drive. But also, um, yes, I think taking penetration and that type of sex off the table is really interesting and a great point. Um, I also think about studying ways to um, recognize pleasure and even sensitizing the body, right? And so I think of meditation and other ways to become more sensitive to our surroundings and also just the beauty of touch and connection, right? And Tantra teaches us this. There's so many different schools around how we can become more sensitive to everything around us and um, be stimulated by that. And, yeah, when we get into that mode where even if it's a color or a taste where we can kind of experience it through our entire body, there's a sensuality in that. It's really living the erotic in some ways. And that is something that can translate into partnership in a beautiful way if both partners are communicating on that. I think the challenge is really a communication breakdown where expectations are unspoken and maybe unrealistic and not even mutually agreed upon.
0: Yeah, those conversations can feel so challenging because it's so vulnerable and Mm -hmm. we can feel fear or, you know, concern that we'll make our partner feel bad or that, you know, we don't want someone else to feel rejected. Sometimes putting a voice to the thing that we're afraid of is so scary. Mm -hmm. But then once we do it, that's really, it really kind of sets the stage for um, intimacy and and closeness and kind of like lets the air out of the balloon to just, because usually when you say it, it turns out not to be nearly as big of a deal as, as we make it out to be in our head.
1: Yeah. And also really checking in with what turns you on outside of the relationship and then being able to articulate, hey, this turns me on, like, let's bring it into the relationship. For me, I know it's harder for me to fully relinquish control in certain situations when I'm like getting into um getting going you know and getting stimulated and I really want to like have this position of control and I recognize that that turns me on when I'm able to not only be in control but I'm getting good feedback around like what I'm doing right Mm, yeah And and it's and it's appreciated and so recognizing that in yourself and being able to be like you know what I need to kind of take the reins here so that I can you know be In my body and Mm. and feeling a sense of power in myself uh, is is valuable. Yeah,
0: knowing what your needs are, how to articulate them, the proactivity, which I know for you, a really important aspect of love is talking about how it is an action, it's a verb. That's right. Tell us about the decision to pursue love activism.
1: Yeah. Um, So ultimately, when we face our mortality, often, And I had an amazing conversation on my podcast with um, a Lua Arthur, a death doula, about this. Um, But when we face mortality, the two most common questions asked are, did I love and was I loved? And I faced my mortality when I got my diagnosis and recognized that love was really blue sky. It was really something that I could focus my attention on as a purpose um, it's something that I had been a bit focused on. I had been learning about extremist hate, and I came up with this idea of being a love extremist a couple of years before I had my diagnosis. But it didn't really resonate in my body. It resonated in my head. It was a mental thing. And then when I got sick, it was like, oh, okay, cool. This is what this is about. And ultimately, love is going through a crisis right now in terms of how we define it and how we experience it and many people don't take it seriously many people also confuse it with lust or confuse it with romance and valentines day or whatever it might be and it's been co-opted by so many different industries and movies and media and all sorts of things and as far as i'm concerned i believe love is a verb love is an action it is an intention and a choice and There's so many other ways to explore it and define it, but it is tied to the belief and the acknowledgement of our history, our present and our future, both ourselves, our partners and our relationships and our relations and the world and a belief in unconditional light and beauty and truth. And that's actually not always light and beautiful. I shouldn't say that. I I think truth can be really hard um, and really dark. And ultimately, honoring truth in history, present, and future, in yourself first, and then recognize it in others, learning to see it authentically in yourself and authentically in others and then authentically in the world around us, allows us to then act with empathy. And empathy means recognizing the emotions and the connect and, and the connection to emotion and, and being able to empathize and feel maybe some of the emotion that someone else might be going through or the world might be going through or your your own self or your past self your future self might be going through but not taking on that emotion wow. recognizing it and responding but not internalizing it mm. because internalizing it, de- uh, it makes you incapacitated and, and and basically gives you over to that emotion without being able to really be in recognition mm. and, and, and be witness.
0: I really appreciate all of that, especially the piece about truth. Mm-hmm. When I first learned about your work, I think from Stephanie Michelle mm-hmm. she introduced us and when I heard the term love activist, I was really struck when I went to your website and I immediately saw social justice because sometimes um, you know act I, I don't even know if they use the term activism, but I guess influencer, let's think about that. An influencer in the love space or the self-care space a lot of times kind of bypasses the social justice and the um, inclusivity and the intersectionality of these ideas. And I felt so much gratitude, and I still do when I see your content and when I've, I've heard your podcast, that you really delve deep into those truths. Um You know, the ways that that race impact all of these things, the way that all kinds of privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, Was that an intent from the beginning?
1: It's been a learning process. As I started to investigate truth, I started to uncover and recognize my privilege. Privilege is invisible when we have it until we um, unearth it and recognize it. And it's it's illuminated. And privilege is also not earned. We're born with privilege or it might be given to us over time. Um, But it's often not something that, um, we can claim as we, we earn this, you know, and, and so often we, we falsely do, but, um, ultimately recognizing that the truth of 2020 and of our history is one of oppression, uh, one of, um, lack of privilege for so many. And, uh, ultimately we live in a patriarchal, white supremacist, capitalist culture, you know, and reading bell hooks certainly helped me. And she informed my definitions of love, which were informed by her and Eric Fromm before her, and also um, helped me recognize the connection between love and activism and how those things are inextricably linked. And if we love ourselves, then we have the tools to love others and we have the tools to love our community and be activists with love. And that then turns to doing that responsibly and with truth. And that means not bypassing and not avoiding and not running away from and not being complicit, but actually addressing head-on the issues that are real.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And you do that, and I really appreciate it. And that resonates with me so much, the idea that we, we don't know that we have privilege until something happens where it's revealed to us, Mm -hmm. usually because somebody else does not have that kind of privilege. Mm -hmm. Is there an experience that you recall where you had your eyes opened up to a type of privilege that you have?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, even in my medical process, uh, there was huge amounts of privilege in terms of being able to go to Boston for my surgery. I had to basically find through my relationships the... Um, emails of the people that ran my health insurance company, literally like the top brass at my health insurance company to sign off on my surgery taking place at another hospital outside of their network. Mm-hmm. And we'd found the surgeon. The surgeon was okay to do it but I you know, didn't have the six figures to pay for this surgery and the insurance company said they would. But that was extraordinary and deeply tied to the privilege of connection and community that I have. Um, my father having access to medical resources as a doctor and someone that is highly regarded in the field, um, and all of the compounding privileges that have come to us as white, you know, men in this culture.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful example, a life or death example, literally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How does all of this tie in to sexual empowerment, especially the self-love piece?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I will say that I have had a transformation in terms of how I view my body. And a lot of that is tied to diet and exercise. And that's one other thing I recognized with your listener question. Exercise can be a really amazing stimulant for getting your relationship to your body in a good place um, and also accessing more sexual vigor. Yeah, um, circulation, getting yeah.
0: blood to the right places.
1: Exactly. So, for example, my partner and I go to Pilates trying to do it a couple times a week and it's awesome. Not only do I get to um, you know, be next to her and <laughs> she's wearing spandex and it's this whole kind of it's for me this kind of fantasy experience, but also it's this beautiful practice of working out and getting sweaty and really using my body and I'm in a ketogenic diet right now, um, which is focused on um, keeping my, my tumor from growing. And in doing so, I when I work out, my body really changes quickly and really responds. So I would say uh, self-love for me um, has been a lot about just loving being alone, loving the things that I'm spending my time and attention on, recognizing when I'm not and, and tapping into my body and checking in constantly and starting to take care of the body as a limited instrument and realizing our bodies don't last forever. We have a limited period of time with them, whether it's you know tomorrow it's gone or five, 50 years from now, 500 years from now, whatever it is, and it's, it's not going to last forever. And so just treating that body with the most respect and care I can then translates into my sexuality and my partnership. And so it allows me to say, you know what, I'm not going to share this body with just anyone, actually. And um, my partner now is someone that I plan to spend the rest of my life with. And I met her largely because I was in this intense period of self-love and recognizing how much, how sacred the body is and treating it that way. And she saw me treating myself that way and, and being in this space of Um, sacred recognition of my body and wanted to participate in that
0: that's really beautiful and you've shared um on instagram a bit about your relationship Mm -hmm. and it really shows even in your photos of the Mm -hmm. two of you there's a beautiful synchronicity and you just pick up a vibe of something very real and special Mm -hmm. i'm so happy you found that thank you Could you talk about the tension between self-love and interpersonal love, especially in regard to to setting boundaries, which is so important, right, for for self-care?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So ultimately, you can't show up in interpersonal love, in my view, without having a healthy self-love. And self-love is not just about self-care. Right. So those are very different things. Taking a bath, getting a massage, working out, whatever that is, meditating. Those are all great practices and can contribute to self-love. Recognizing what lights you up every day and practicing that is certainly self-love. And also setting boundaries for that, making time, making sure that you are doing the things that you love to do every day so that when you show up to your partner or you show up to your friends or your family, you're a light. You're in joy, and they're not in any way needed to add to your light so that wherever they are, they may add to your light. They may also try to dim your light, but this is where the empathy comes in and where you can stand alone independently in your body confidently and recognize where they are, not necessarily let it dim your light, but but, but show up for them and be present and be loving, and be mm. be there, and engage with what they need without feeling depleted, without losing yourself. And so it's really, it's a great book called Codependency No More. Um, you know, that's a classic, or Codependent No More. And um, there's some other great books on codependency. And I'd say that's a traditional state of relationship, but a lot of people bypass self-love and go straight to relational love. Um, and in so... Seek things from their partnerships that they can't give themselves. And I am of the opinion that that doesn't make for a healthy relationship long term um, and need to be able to stand on my own two feet. So, my partner and I, we have solo retreats or we make sure we have time to go do things with our friends and we're not, we do spend a lot of time together, but also, you know, make sure we have our own quiet time. Uh, for ourselves and for our friendships and for our families and for the things that we want to do and we love, she's ballet dancing right now. I might go on a snowboard trip. You know, I- I'm traveling next week on my own. We-, we do things, you know, independently so that we can come back together and celebrate and find that we can both be generally light each other up more and add to each other's lives because we're co- showing up full.
0: Yeah, I believe in that so much. Yeah. Having your own individuality and what that brings to the relationship is so powerful Mm -hmm. to be able to, as you said, celebrate it together, Uh, share adventures.
1: And I want to add, we both have a therapy practice. That's huge. Um, Whether you do talk therapy or meditation or um, somatic therapy or exercise or all of these things, whatever works for you that you truly believe in um, is so necessary So that when you have issues or when you have stuff that comes up, you have other outlets beyond your partnership. Because sometimes you got to take it to your therapist or your best friend or, you know, a family member instead of bringing it into the relationship.
0: Yeah. Amen. I'm with you 100% there. You have a really cool challenge going on where people can uh, kind of... Activate in the love realm. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So it's 2020 and spreading love without expectation is an act of extremism. And I believe in being an extremist for love, like the quote that you shared from Dr. King we have a choice. And um, this, I, I choose love and I encourage others to come with me. And so we've come up with this simple challenge. Actually, uh, my partner, Michelle, and I um, came up with it together. And it's really a series of one-line emails. So you sign up and then you get a one-line email for five days, five consecutive days. And it's sent to your inbox. And your only task is to forward it to one person without much thought. Right. The first person that comes to mind, it's like first thought, best thought to send it out. So um, I, I think we I have one that um, just came out with that's um, you challenged me to rethink how I live my life or how I how I view the world. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to someone who is an artist and a friend who's actually been on my podcast, who I deeply care about and love. And it was just she was the first person that came to mind. And that was it. And there's no expectation for her to respond. I just want to light up her day with that message. And if she responds, great. If it you know turns into a conversation, great. Could be someone I haven't connected with in a long time. It could be someone I talk to every day. But ultimately, the, the, the goal is just to send someone a message of love and allow that to kind of liberate them and you um, by not expecting anything from it.
0: Mm, that sounds like a lot of fun too, like a really unique experience to uh, to give a try. That might feel a little bit vulnerable, like you might have a little butterfly around, which mm-hmm. I think is a good sign. Typically, yeah. <laughs> How do people sign up?
1: Uh, so you can go to extremist dot love slash liberation dash challenge. Um, or just go to www.extremist.love, and on the bottom, there's the Liberation Challenge. And there's also some links in my Instagram and on the Love Extremist Instagram to um to go and and sign up and join us
0: great and you're an artist as well a visual artist so people can find your art online and your podcast where do we find those
1: yeah so my art is on just my name's website ethan lipsitz e-t-h-a-n-l-i-p-s-i-t-z dot com and uh also at ethan lipsitz on instagram And the podcast is Love Extremist Radio. And so wherever you get your podcast, just search for Love Extremist Radio. It'll pop up Spotify, iTunes, um, wherever you listen and feel free to leave a comment if you dig it and let us know you came from Girl Boner Radio and uh, oh, yeah. you're, you're feeling what we're up to.
0: I love that. So we can celebrate it. Yes.
1: Yes, yes. And check out my interview with August.
0: <laughs> yes, and also Jamila Dawson. I have <laughs> oh, to say, that yeah. was a, she's been on this show, and I really loved your chat with her. Thank you. I thought it was fabulous.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, um, we've had a lot of great conversations about sex and sexuality. Um, the adult film star Janice Griffith was on the show early on and she's fantastic and had some amazing things to say about that industry and her work um, and a number of other folks. So definitely check it out.
0: Awesome. What's just one message you'd like to leave our listeners with um, about love? Mm.
1: Start taking love seriously and don't write it off. And I would recommend the first step to do that is to start to define it for yourself and then explore what definitions others around you might have. Because it's a really hard question when I ask people to define love. It's one of these things that we all feel like we feel, but we don't quite know how to talk to. And there's actual great theorists out there and you can read about it and you can learn about it and bell hooks is a great resource and there's so many others and i just think it needs to be taken seriously in our culture because it is an anecdote anecdote for a lot of the challenges we're going through and it's not all love and light it's it's love and truth and um, we have a lot of amazing opportunities to work with that
0: Mm. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please do subscribe if you haven't. You can just hit that subscribe button in whatever app you're listening in. You can also leave us a rating and review. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girlboner Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.